Scripture meeting this morning comes from 1 John 5, 13 through 21. If everybody could stand if they are able. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, and he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's word. I invite you to find your way back to 1 John 5. As we pray and ask the Lord to meet us, speak to us through his word. Gracious Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks. Lord, may we be a people who listen. We pray that you would enable us to hear what you have to say to us through your word. We thank you, Lord, for this book of 1 John that we have been working our way through. As we come to these concluding verses, Lord, would you take what you have been saying through your servant John and would you apply it deep into our hearts and our lives? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jerry Bridges tells a story of uh, a southern plantation owner who, upon his death, left $50,000, a $50,000 inheritance to one of his former slaves, which, you know, in that day would have been close to somewhere around half a million dollars, pretty significant chunk of money. And so the lawyer for the plantation owner's estate had notified this former now freed slave of his inheritance and told him that he had an account at the bank with $50,000 in it that was he was welcome to draw on at any point. Those weeks went by. The former slave never came to the bank. And after a while, the, the banker kind of got a little nervous and curious why. And so he sought him out to remind him that you have $50,000 right here waiting for you. And the old man replied to him, Sir, do you think I could have 50 cents to buy a sack of cornmeal? Having never handled money his entire life, he had no concept of the wealth that was now truly his. He was asking for 50 cents when he could have asked for so much more. And yet for that story of what you might call underappreciated wealth, not realizing the gift that one has, 
you can multiply stories of those who come into money and then squander it in self-centered greed. Uh, Just a few examples from recent years. A hip-hop producer who blew through $30 million in less than six months. Uh, A Hollywood actor who made $40 million a year, but who spent millions on around 15 residences around the world. A Gulfstream jet. Yachts, plural. A fleet of Rolls Royces. Jewelry, art, and a dinosaur skull. And who now owes about $13.5 million to the IRS. So, so whereas the former slave couldn't comprehend his wealth and so never used it, so many today worship the wealth that we have or spend it selfishly on themselves. Now, as we come to the conclusion of John's first letter, we'll look at second and third John the next couple of weeks, but as we come to the conclusion of John's first letter this morning, the reality is that we have in Christ a treasure and an inheritance that is far greater than any earthly fortune we might be able to dream of. As John told us uh, earlier in chapter 2, verse 17, the world, this world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of the Lord abides forever. Everything that we think that will make us great or give us pleasure or give us significance uh, in this world will one day turn to dust. That is a proven fact. But a relationship with the God of the universe lasts forever. It's an amazing, amazing thing. There is no greater treasure. There is no greater inheritance than eternal life. What, what John has described throughout his book is to have fellowship with the Father and the Son. To have a genuine, intimate relationship with with God, to be forgiven and cleansed of all our sin, to have Jesus as our advocate before the Father when we mess up, to be guarded from God's enemy as we find our way through this world, to have confidence that to stand before God without shame when Jesus comes back, to be loved by God, not because we loved him, but because he loved us and so therefore able to love him and able to to love others, to know that we will overcome this fallen world because we have already overcome it through Jesus and that there is waiting for us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you with God at the center of it all. That, that is the inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ what Paul calls the unsearchable riches of Christ. Think about that phrase, unsearchable riches. Uh, If you've seen Peter Jackson's version of The Hobbit, uh, you might remember that scene when Bilbo finally comes into the the dragon's hoard under the mountain. And, And literally, it's just everywhere you look, it's mountains and mountains of gold. Imagine having to count that. It's, there's no end. It's an unsearchable wealth. You would never find the end of it. And the Bible tells us that eternal life in Jesus is a treasure 
far more valuable than anything like that. And it is ours through faith in Christ. That is a point that John has been pounding throughout his letter. Uh, to repeat the closing lines of last week's passage, chapter 5, 11 through 12. He says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John wants his readers, the church he's writing to and, and us today, he wants his readers to be confident that they have eternal life in Jesus, that this treasure, that this inheritance has our name on it, to be confident of that. That's one of the main reasons he's even written this letter, as he tells us right at the beginning of our passage here in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that your name is on this inheritance. But of course, we've seen throughout the book that that this kind of assurance of having our name on it is not what you would call cheap. Uh, It's not, you know, the confidence of having a true relationship with God is not based on a prayer I might have prayed at one point in time or a commitment I made or, or an altar call I answered or good work that I've done for God. John doesn't point to anything like that as assurance that our faith is true. Rather, he repeatedly emphasizes three tests of genuine faith. Three ways to tell if we have been born of God and therefore if we belong to God's family. Doctrine, love, and obedience. We've heard them almost every week that we've been in this letter together. God's true children believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who came in the flesh to be the propitiation of our sin. God's true children love God and love each other, especially our our brothers and sisters in Christ. And God's true children make a practice of obeying God's commandments rather than making a practice of sin, of disobeying them. Not, again, talking about perfection, but of progress, of the direction of our lives. These are the things that John has been writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. To reflect and say, is this true of me? Uh, Evidence of genuine faith. But then the question, as you come to the end of it all, still remains, so what do I do with this great inheritance? If this really has my name on it, what do I do with that today? Do I just sit around and wait for the Lord to return and then, and then, you know, or is there a way that God invites us to draw on our inheritance, on this gift of eternal life, even now? That's the note that John lands his letter on. And as he does so, you know, as we consider this absolutely incredible inheritance, we actually find ourselves facing a temptation similar to the former slave and the selfish celebrity. The temptation, on the one hand, to underappreciate this incredible treasure we've been given in Christ. To, to doubt the intimacy with God that, that he wants with us. Or to underestimate our access to him as our father. The, the riches of our communion with God. Um, that he really is with us. That he really does love us. That he really does want to answer our prayers. 
So, so that's the one temptation is, is to underappreciate the gift and therefore not really ever use it. The other side is the temptation to think that, that our relationship with God, to think of it in exclusively individualistic terms, that this is just kind of me and the Father doing our thing and, and you know, never really take our eyes off of what we ourselves want to get out of our relationship. That whatever benefit we have in knowing God is mainly for us um, to make sure we get out of what we want out of life. And, and failing to see that, that it's a family inheritance and that there is therefore uh, a partnership and a relationship, an invitation, not only to enjoy our intimacy with God, but to uh, put that intimacy into practice, into action on behalf of others. So those are the two temptations. And as John wraps up his letter, he, his goal is to help us avoid both of those, reminding us that, that intimacy with God it gives us very real confidence in prayer, like ridiculous confidence in prayer. But that's not just for us. It's also for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if you look again at um, verses 14 to 15, John takes this assurance of having a relationship with God, and then he applies it specifically to the confidence that we have when we come to God in prayer. Verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So think about what John is saying there. If you belong to Jesus, if you have new life in him, Whatever you pray on earth, God hears your prayer. And he doesn't just hear it. He hears it. Like he hears it in a way that he grants our requests. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. God promises to answer prayer. Now that's amazing. A little too good to be true, I think, for some of us. Uh, It almost feels like like John is just kind of handing us a blank check to our inheritance. And, and some of us see that check and, you know, we want to write whatever we want in the amount box. We're, we're tempted to abuse it. Uh, we might write, you know, God's glory in the memo, you know, but really it's our name on the pay to the order line and it's our dreams in that box that tells you the amount. Whatever it is we think will make our life full and valuable, we read a verse like this and and kind of treat it as God's stamp of approval on our self-generated dreams and desires. Um, Desires that often fit more in the category of things that are passing away than things that are about God's kingdom. And so some of us see that check and, and, and we get dollar signs running through our eyes when we see a verse like this. Others are so afraid of abusing the check or afraid of others abusing it that we take that out of their hands and we just tear it up right in front of them. Nobody gets to cash in because nobody can be trusted or, or because God just doesn't do that. He doesn't really mean what he's saying here. I mean, besides, what if you asked him for something and he didn't do it? We don't want God to look bad. And so it's just it's safer just to ask for 50 cents and, and be okay with that. 
And so some of us take that approach. But there is a check here, so to speak. God is making a very big promise. We really do have confidence in our relationship with God to ask him to do big things, far bigger than 50 cents. He wants us to pray boldly for things that only he can do. But what ought to guide our prayers and give us the confidence that he will answer is not ultimately our own dreams and desires, but God's will. Look again at verse 14. And this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything in accordance with his will, he hears us. God gives us access to our inheritance for a purpose. Not so that we can do whatever we want and try to make heaven here on earth, but so that we can serve his kingdom and advance the causes of heaven with power and confidence that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is our blank check. Whatever we write in the amount box in accordance with God's will, we know that we have what we asked of him. I mean, for so many of us, it's, it's so easy when we think of our prayer life. If you just kind of go back, what did I actually ask God to do this last week? You know, finding a parking spot. That's a big win some days, you know. Um, figuring out what to cook for supper. Uh, or, or sometimes bigger things like paying the rent. Um, and, and it's not that God's unconcerned with those things. He wants us to pray about everything. He wants us to express our dependence on him for every aspect of life because he cares about every aspect of life. He's working out everything according to the counsel of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. You know, where we work, where we live, what, you know, how we do in school, God cares about those things. But, but he has made himself available to us for so much more than just dinner or a good grade on the test, or even a promotion at work. He has invited us to pray for the salvation of souls, for, for people who were dead in their sin to finally be alive and see God for who he really is. That's a miracle that only God can do. He's invited us to pray that the darkness of this fallen world would be broken and that lives would be redeemed. That's a big thing. God, in his love, invites us to participate in the unfolding of his perfect will through prayer. He really does hear us when we pray. And he does care about dinner. He'll help you with that, too. But he cares about so much more. There's so much more that's at stake in this world. And he wants us to pray big prayers that only, only he can answer. And so just a few simple ways to put that in practice. So number one, pray bigger. When you pray, are you asking God for 50 cents or are you asking him to move mountains for the sake of his gospel? Again, there's nothing wrong with praying for simple things, but, but are, is there anything in my prayer life that I know will not happen unless God shows up? Is there anything I'm coming to him over and over again, asking him to do that I can't actually do in case he doesn't get the memo? That God has to show up. Pray bigger. 
Pray for God to show himself as God. And if you're not sure how to pray God's will or according to God's will, start by praying through Scripture. It's the second thing that we can do to help us pray big prayers in accordance with God's will. Pray through God's Scriptures. Whatever, you know, if, if you're working through the Bible and certain readings a day, pray those passages back to God. Ask Him to do what He says He's going to do. Uh, Pray the Psalms. Pray some of Paul's prayers. And when you pray through the Scriptures, you'll find that you know, what's happening is that not only are you praying for what God wants, but you're praying for things only God can do. He will help you pray in accordance with His will for things that are much bigger than 50 cents. The third, pray together. Pray together with other Christians. Join a prayer group. Start a prayer group. Pray, pray with your children. Pray with your spouse. You know, praying together in community helps us get our eyes off of ourselves and out onto what God is doing in the world. And then fourth, consider keeping a prayer journal. It's a very practical thing, but you know, a place where you can not only just record what you're asking God for, but the answers when they come. It's an extremely encouraging thing, even after years, to look back and say, Here's what we've been, God, we've been asking God for all this time. And wow, here's how he answered it. Because there are times where you need to be reminded that God actually hears you and that he does actually answer prayer. And to be able to go back and see his faithfulness, it's an encouraging thing and it keeps us praying big prayers that only God can do. This is the confidence that we have before God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. As Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 7, Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God invites us to pray with confidence. But this access that we have to God is not just about us. That's the second thing John zeroes in on as he kind of lands the plane of his letter. We need to believe that, that the riches of eternal life with God uh, really are unsearchable and really do have our name on it through faith in Christ. But we need to remember that this is not my inheritance. This is our inheritance together as a family. And so John, as he gives kind of the general encouragement to, to pray with confidence, he now applies that confident prayer to a specific situation, to praying for brothers and sisters involved in sin. So notice the, the repetition of the word ask in verses 15 and 16. And we know that if, we, if he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. So John takes this general confidence we have in prayer and applies it to a specific situation, not only to our own needs, but also to our brothers and sisters, particularly when they're involved in sin. Now, these verses raise all sorts of questions. Uh, the first of which is, 
what in the world does John mean when he talks about a brother or sister committing a sin not leading to death versus a sin leading to death? What's that all about? Look again at verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay. You know, the more time I spend in First John, the more convinced I am that John was kind of like the Yoda of the apostles. You know, he just kind of throws these phrases out there, kind of circular and poetic, and you're not exactly sure what he means at the time, but it's pretty profound, you know. Um, and, and we've seen him do that over and over in this book. You read through the Gospel of John, he narrates that way. It's just these big pictures uh, trying to com- communicate big truths. And, and, and we have it right here, again, in the way that he talks about these two kinds of sin, one leading to death, one not leading to death. And you know, I thought all sin was the same, that, that you know, all sin is, is sin. And, and so what's he doing here? And as you might imagine, there have been all sorts of suggestions trying to sort out uh, what he means by this. Is he talking about you know, mortal versus venial sin, to use Roman Catholic categories? Or, or is he talking about intentional versus unintentional sin, kind of a, a throwback to the law of Israel? Um, is he talking about the unforgivable sin in Matthew 12, blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Uh, you know, and, and, and you could add more suggestions to that. But the problem is, at least with those specific ones, is they really don't do any, make any sense of the context here in 1 John. Uh, I think the simplest and most likely explanation in following John's line of argumentation throughout the book is that John is talking about sin that Christians commit, sin that doesn't lead to death because it has already been covered by the blood of the Lamb, versus sin that a non-Christian commits. That does, in fact, lead to death apart from Christ. And so it's, it's to speak of praying for a brother or a sister whose sin does not lead to death. That's kind of John's poetic way of reinforcing the believer's security in Christ and therefore the confidence with which we can pray for their repentance and their reconciliation. Uh, he's, he's not saying here, you know, don't pray for non-Christians. Uh, God tells us to, to do that all sorts of places. He's simply saying, that's not the kind of prayer I'm making promises about. I'm making promises about the kind of prayer offered on behalf of a Christian who sins because we know with confidence God will act. He will give life. We can pray with confidence for them because their sin is covered and they belong to Jesus. And so, so that's my best shot at understanding what he's talking about here, that, that he's encouraging us to pray for Christians who sin with confidence that God will restore them. But of all the situations that John might apply confidence and prayer toward, why this one? Um, you know, why focus on other people's sin? Uh, actions or words or attitudes that, that dishonor God, that break his word. Um, yeah, I think for most of us, this is probably the most awkward application John could give us at the end of the book. Uh, you know, and it's not because we don't like to pray for each other. We have no problem praying for a brother or sister who's sick. We can do that all day long. 
You know, we have no problem praying for a brother and sister, or sister who's in need. But to pray for someone, uh, a fellow Christian, who, who is kind of stuck or walking in sin, that makes us really uncomfortable. Uh, I think probably because it feels pretty invasive. Uh, we, we've gotten comfortable with the idea of American individualism such that someone's sin, we kind of view that as between them and God. And, and that we really probably shouldn't get involved. That's a private matter. Well, not according to John. He doesn't think of sin being committed by a Christian as something that's, that's private, but a family issue. Um, I think the other reason that we feel awkward thinking about praying about somebody else's sin is that, it, frankly, it feels judgmental. Uh, who am I to worry about someone else's sin when I have plenty of my own to be dealing with right now. Um, and, and I think that that's an important caution. I think that's a really important caution. Uh, we do not want to offer our prayers from a posture of self-righteousness, um, looking down our nose at, at these other poor sinners, you know, like the Pharisee who prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. That's not what... John wants us to do. And, and really, you're not ready to pray about someone else's sin until you understand your own desperate need for the Savior. Um, John is not sending us on a witch hunt for one another. But he does not want us to turn a blind eye to sin within the body of Christ. For the simple reason of what he's been trying to get through to us all along that we are called to love one another. That's why we have to take sin seriously. Because that's what it means to love each other in the body of Christ. If you saw your friend walking around with a festering wound or with a, you know, a tumor growing out the back of their head or something like that, it would be unloving to not let them know something might be going on. You know, it's kind of basic common sense. Sin is so much more dangerous than that. It's, it's like, you know, if, if you're a gardener, it's like that little weed that you see. And you know, it's like, I could bend over and pull that thing out right now. It'd be gone. But it's no big deal. It's small. And, and it's something that if we ignore it over time and, and leave it unchecked, pretty soon that one tiny little weed can overtake the entire garden. Sin is deceptive. It tries to trick us into putting our hope and trust in something other than God. Looking to cash in on the desires of this world instead of our eternal hope in Christ. Which is why John ends the letter the way he does. You know, if you get to the last verse of John, uh, of 1 John 5.21, and he has this phrase, little children keep yourself from idols, it feels like he's just coming out of nowhere with that thing. He hasn't talked about idolatry the entire book. It's just this Random tack on. By the way, I forgot to say this, but I really think that it is connected to what he's talking about now because idolatry, treating something other than God as God, is the heart of sin. And that is the enemy's greatest deceptive tactic to try and get us to put our hope in something other than Christ. Keep yourself from false gods who make promises they cannot keep and who take from you everything. Keep yourself from idols, any 
sin is a failure to direct our worship to the true God. And so, so sin weakens our intimacy and our communion with God, the thing John's been advocating for. It damages our relationships with one another, the thing he's been advocating for, love one another. And it spoils our witness before the watching world. If we can see a brother or sister walking in sin, so can those outside the church. And they will draw conclusions about who God is and what he's like and what church is all about based on what they see. And so the witness of Christ is at stake. It is unloving to let a noticeable sin go undealt with among the church. It's unloving. So what do you do when you see it? Someone's reporting to you some gossip that they heard, or someone is, you know, uh, you happen to be aware they're doing something that they know they shouldn't be doing. What do you do when you see it? Do you start a blog? Tell everybody, here's the, here's the, bring a prayer request before a group, you know, we need to pray for so-and-so. Put that prayer request on Facebook, you know. Tell the pastor, there's one I get sometimes. What do you do when you see it? Well, what John tells us to do when we see a fellow Christian in sin is first and foremost to pray. To pray for them. Pray for conviction of sin, that God would would show them what is really going on and, and that they would want to do something about it. Pray for confession of sin. Pray for repentance and reconciliation. Pray that God would remind them who they are in Christ. That they are a child of the King and that this world has nothing to offer them that can compare with the riches of their inheritance. Pray that they would remember that God loves them. That they don't have to do these things to try and find life. Pray that they wouldn't feel like they have to perform or pretend in order to be accepted by God or accepted by others, but that they would run to and rest in the grace of God that we all so desperately depend on. The forgiveness and cleansing that we have in Christ. If we confess our sins, John tells us, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God forgives sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. John wants us to pray for one another with confidence that God will give life to brothers and sisters who are involved in sin. That they will see and remember their heritage and turn away from their sin and embrace the grace of God we have in Christ. Pray with confidence. Now, that doesn't mean that there's never a time to say something, especially if you're the one who's been sinned against. Uh, Jesus gives us guidelines for how to go about that with humility and godliness in Matthew 18. But he also warns us, again in Matthew 7, to deal first with our own sin. You know, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to deal with the speck in your brothers. But the single most powerful thing that we can do 
when a fellow Christian is not walking with God is to pray. It's to pray. Change comes from God's work. Not from how persuasive we can be. Not from how much of a guilt trip we can put on somebody. Change comes from God, not from us. And John is confident that when we pray, we can expect God to answer favorably for our brothers and sisters. He gives four reasons in verses 18 to 20. These are all things that he's already talked about earlier in the book, and he's now taking those and he's applying them to this confidence that we have in praying for fellow Christians. First, he's confident that God will answer our prayers to deliver a fellow Christian from sin because true children of God are changed by the gospel. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. God's spirit will bring conviction. And if there's never any conviction, then you have to wonder whether God's spirit's actually there. Do they really truly believe in Jesus? If they do, we have confidence that God's not going to let them keep going down that path. We can pray with faith that he will answer. Second, because true children of God are protected by the child of God, his son. Continuing in verse 18. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We can pray with confidence because we know that Jesus protects us from the schemes of the devil and that no one can snatch us out of Christ's hand. That is his promise in John 10. So we can pray with confidence. Third, because true children of God belong to God and don't belong to this world. The world has no rightful claim on them. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And then fourth, because Jesus has revealed himself in truth to God's children. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. This is our inheritance in Christ. This is the confidence we have in prayer. Not just for ourselves, but also on behalf of others. We are in this together, this journey of walking with the Lord, of abiding with Christ. We are in this together as a family. And John wants us to pray for our family, even as we pray for our own lives, to pray for our family. And so it's fitting that we now celebrate the gospel as a family as we come to the Lord's table. Uh, the meal that we're going to celebrate here uh, is a celebration uh, of the unsearchable riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And this table here is a reminder that through Christ, we really do have access to God. Like, this is true. When, God, when we pray to God, because of who Christ is and our union with him, God really hears our prayers. This table is a reminder for that because it points us back to what Christ has done for us on the cross to make that possible. The bread that we're about to eat is a sign pointing 
to Jesus' body, which was broken for us on the cross. The cup that we're about to drink is a sign pointing us to his blood that he shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so through faith in him, we become God's children. We become heirs of the kingdom. Our name is written on the inheritance slip. And so if Jesus is your king, we need to celebrate that together. If he is your savior, I invite you to share in this meal, this table, in faith. And as you prepare to share it, in light of what we've been reading here in 1 John, I encourage you, take time to reflect on your life and to confess any sin you have to God. John tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So ask God for forgiveness and rejoice in his forgiveness. And if you're not a Christian this morning, we love to get our children who believe in the Lord to come up and share in this table with us. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not sure what that means, I encourage you just to let the elements pass today. And instead of taking hold of the sign, put your faith in Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation of our sins. And not only our sins, the sins of the whole world. And so please take a moment to to pray quietly, to ask God to reveal your heart, to bring those things before the Lord, and, and to ask him to meet us together as we celebrate this table. Let's pray. Lord, what a holy privilege it is to be able to commune with you through this table. Lord, we recognize that what this table represents is your love for us. We who were made in your image, beautiful, dignified in every way, and yet who have strayed from you in sin, you love us and therefore sent your Son to save us, and the way he did that was through the cross. Lord, this is a table that declares to us your love. And so may we come to it with love in our hearts for you. A love that says no to the sin that so easily blinds us and and distracts us. A love that says no to sin and yes to you. Yes to obedience. Not in order to gain your approval, but as your children who have found their approval through Christ. And so meet us, nourish us, remind us of the truth of the gospel, that your love is for us and that it is enough as we celebrate this table together. In Jesus' name, amen.